Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. I've got some exciting news for you. Legally Speaking Podcast is hitting the road and heading to ClioCon 2023 in Nashville from October the 9th to the 10th. Imagine two days jam-packed with game-changing insights, networking opportunities, and the chance to connect with legal minds from around the globe. Whether you're an attorney, paralegal, or just someone passionate about the world of law, this conference is for you. So mark your calendars and join us at ClioCon 2023 and see you in Nashville. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the wonderful Nicole Williams. Nicole completed her law degree at the University of Manchester and her LPC at Nottingham Trent University. She trained as a solicitor at Allen and Overy before qualifying as an associate. Nicole joined BNY Mellon, where she was a senior legal counselor and managing director. In 2016, she moved to Ashurst as a senior associate. Nicole is now a counsel in the investment funds and debt capital markets practices at the firm. She specializes in funds and structured finance with extensive experience in private equity funds, real estate, infrastructure funds, and more. Nicole is also the super proud global head of inclusion, diversity and belonging at Ashurst. Nicole is passionate about promoting change in the legal sector whilst championing ways to attract and hire the most talented lawyers. So a very warm welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for that introduction. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And for before we dive into all of that, we do have a customary question here on the Legally Speaking podcast to kick things off, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law? Well, I have to confess, Rob, that I haven't actually ever watched Suits. I am... So I can't really comment on that, but I have watched other legal dramas such as The Good Wife and The Good Fight, which I'd love to say are very accurate of the legal profession, but they're probably not. We don't find ourselves in court every single day, and we also don't have the wardrobe attire that they seem to have, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, but I'm a fan of anything that gets people interested in the legal profession and wants them, makes them want to find out more about what we're doing in the legal profession. Ah, well, fair comment and well said. And with that, we're going to talk all about the legal profession and your journey. So to begin with, Nicole, would you mind telling our listeners about your background and career journey? Um, well, I think you summed it up quite well in the introduction there, which is it's a bit like this is your life. So it's really nice to hear your career being talked about by someone else. But um, I was listening to a podcast this weekend, actually. And one of the things they said is, how do you define yourself when you're posed with the question or the statement, I am? And I think for me, in terms of my background, when I ask a question or when I have to talk about what I am, I would say I am black of Caribbean descent and I am a female lawyer. I'm also from the north of England, which I'm incredibly proud of. I'm a Yorkshire lass. And I'm also from a working class background, which is something that it has taken me a long time to really say in the legal profession because I think um, historically or when I entered the legal profession I would say there weren't many working class people in the legal profession but I 
I don't know if that's actually true. I think a lot of us would pretend or hide our background. I mean, I obviously can't hide that I'm black and I'm female, but being from a working class background is something that I did feel I could kind of hide. It's something that I'm now incredibly proud of, and I've um, at Ashes established a social mobility network. But I think in terms of my background, I was state school educated. I went to school in an inner city state school in Bradford, which is as glamorous as that sounds. I then, as you said, went on to Manchester University, a university that I picked not only because of its academic credentials, but also because it had a really good program in terms of getting young people within the law, doing the law degree into the legal profession. And I think that was something that was really important to me, having not had any role models in the legal profession or any access to the legal profession, picking a university that could help me secure a job was fundamental to where I chose to study. I, I then went on to do my LPC, obviously, at Nottingham, again, staying as close to the North as possible because I am hugely biased of the North. Um, but I eventually moved down to London to do my training contract at A&O, Magic Circle Firm, which was, was a great experience. And I had the opportunity to go to Tokyo um, with A&O, my final six months of my training contract. Happened to be on the day that Lehman's collapsed, which was traumatizing and exciting at the same time. But I eventually, as you said, moved in house into Bank of New York, which was a great um, learning experience for me. I think being in-house, it's a different way of doing legal work. You, your mind thinks in a different way. The days are incredibly intense. You're put under in, um, pressure to really focus on what the legal risks are and legal issues. And, and that was a brilliant um, journey for me to then come back into private practice at Ashurst where I started in the debt capital markets team, but then eventually moved into the investment funds team. And then eventually moving into tying my investment funds experience and moving into DNI, so diversity and inclusion, which is the role that I do now alongside investment funds. That's a very long story. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of impressive credentials there. And what I want to, to, to pick up on is point one, I studied in Yorkshire, Leeds. I love the North. This is actually being recorded from my side in Lancashire. So I live in the Northwest now. I'm a strong advocate. Midlands man who went to London, who then rooted back to the North. So we're absolutely agreed on, on that. And interestingly, when you said Tokyo Lehman crash, it brought back memories to when I first started in my uh, recruiting career. Um, it was day one of Lehman's crash. And I'd see people with boxes walking out of offices going, is this normal? Are people sort of just leaving their desks and sort of, you know, losing jobs left, right and center? Welcome to the square mile sort of thing so uh, I can absolutely absolutely envisage those those days very clearly so you gave a really good comprehensive overview there thank you I want to sort of drill down on a couple of points within that journey um one particularly was obviously in 2016 when you joined Ashurst as a senior associate you'd obviously got great training from ANO you'd had wonderful experiences that you touched on the opportunity to go to Tokyo but you were a senior associate in 2019 then promoted to council you know that's impressive so you know what were your responsibilities did you have as a senior associate in council and, and how did you get to those sort of um how did you get those promotions give some of the, the sort of learnings and wisdom that you picked up along the way yeah, so I think as a senior associate, I mean, for me, it was a, a huge move to become a senior associate in the investment funds practice. It was 
very linked to the experience I had, but I was changing practice areas. And that's a challenge in itself. But I think that's the beauty of where we find ourselves today in our careers, that careers are not just one straight path, they are fluid. And I think it was a good learning experience in terms of knowing that you pick up life skills along the way that help you on your journey. So I'm a very technical lawyer. I like to be quite assured. I'd also say I'm a very creative lawyer as well. And I think both of those things really helped me making that transition to being a, a senior associate in investment funds coming from a debt capital markets background. Um, the work I did was fantastic, really growth opportunities. And one of the things I really love about investment funds is that I get to work with lots of different clients, but very closely aligned with the business. So perhaps in some other areas of law, you work on big transactions, but you never really make the, meet the key decision makers. But investment funds, you really get to do that. And so you learn a, a different skill set as well. Um, I enjoyed the work. I do lots of drafting as a senior associate, but it was great to have that managerial responsibility. I'm someone who's very committed investing in people. I think that's a big part of the role that we do and um, passing on to the next generation. And I, as, as happy in my own success as the success of those that I've mentored or managed as well. So that was the work as a senior associate, lots of drafting, lots of negotiation of documents in the investment funds world managing. And I think as I moved into council role, it was an extension of that. For those who are not familiar with council, it's in some ways an alternative to partnership. In other ways, it can be a stepping stone to partnership. It is a recognition of your technical expertise as a lawyer, but also it's an opportunity to really lead transactions, lead your teams. You can be involved in the BD side of, of the growing the business but also an opportunity sometimes to take a breath and to think about what you want to do in your career, which I think is incredibly important. As I said, in 2023, careers are not very linear. We don't just follow all of the steps. Some people do. But there's points where you want to be recognised for where you are in your career from a technical or an academic perspective or an expertise perspective but you want to think about what the next step for you is and what's best for you and council was that opportunity for me to to really still lead but also to think about where I wanted to go next in my career. Yeah and I mean what an impressive career it's it, it's been and I love that you talked about creativity being important as well and I love that you also talk about you know it's not just straightforward and, and, and linear because um, it's so true isn't it in 2023 you can run your own race at your own pace and go down your own path and you know I think it's um, it's really important that we stress that message to people who see your title see what you've achieved see what you've done but hearing it from people like yourself to say, no, you know, you can go at it your own your own way is, is super important. I just want to briefly, just again, for listeners who may not be so familiar, could you just briefly describe sort of break down investment funds and debt capital markets in terms of the practice and law? You know, what are they specifically just sort of briefly, just so people have a bit more of an understanding? Absolutely. So investment funds, in a nutshell, that is getting a pool of investors to who really want to make a profit want to they have a pool of cash and they want to make sure that that cash generates further profit for them 
So they're looking for somebody who has the expertise to invest that money in certain assets with the view that those assets will increase in value and when they're eventually sold, that profit will be returned to those investors. So what I typically do is um, advise what we call fund managers. Fund managers have great expertise in investing that cash into assets. And I work in a certain area of investment funds because there's lots of different areas of funds. Um, I work in alternatives. So that's where fund managers invest in what we call alternative assets, which are assets that are harder to sell and take a longer term investment profile. So they could be real estate assets, they could be up and coming businesses, they could be huge infrastructure projects. My clients will take the pool of investment cash from investors and they will invest in those types of assets to generate a return. So that's the investment funds work that I do. For debt capital markets, I like to think of it as a bit of an IOU when you're dealing with corporates or when you're dealing with governments. So corporates and governments want to raise capital for them to be able to invest that in their businesses or into government projects. And what we do is we issue an instrument, a bond potentially, which is essentially an IOU saying we'll lend you this cash and in return you'll repay us the cash that we've lent you with interest. So like any type of loan, but it's an instrument that is with multiple different investors investing in that government and corporate. I hope I've (laughs) managed to describe that in the very simple um, language as possible. It's, It's quite a complex area and because so for me, very interesting, but definitely something that keeps the economy and society going round really. It is. And I was going to compliment you on how well you managed to articulate both of the areas of what you do so simplistically. So thank you. Yes, I think you did a wonderful job of that. And you talking of wonderful jobs, you do a wonderful job as the global co-head of inclusion, diversity and belonging, which notice what I called that title, folks, because there's very lots of diversity and inclusion titles and D, E and I titles out there. So um, I would love to know what sort of global co-head of um, inclusion, diversity and importantly belonging means to you and then I'd love to learn about some of the strategies and initiatives you've implemented to promote the culture of inclusion and diversity within the firm. Yeah I think really what we did was try to devise the most longest job title anyone can ever have. (laughs) (laughs) I um, would definitely say I have a very long job title and but there is some method behind that, I guess, and rationale why it's called inclusion, diversity and belonging at Ashurst. Inclusion being a really critical thing. So diversity, I think everybody understands what that means. We want greater representation from a more diverse population. I think there's a moral reason for that. There's also in the last few years been really sound business rationale for why that is important for businesses and and law firms, because there's lots of evidence showing that diverse institutions are more profitable, more innovative, more collaborative, and more productive. Um, So diversity for me, it's always been that moral reason, but there's a, a business reason as well for that. But hiring diverse people, hiring diverse lawyers isn't just the end game because if you hire people and they don't feel included 
and they don't feel like they belong, they will leave. And that inclusion piece is really having the equal access to opportunities. And when I say equal, that doesn't mean everybody having the same um, privileges and the same rights to those opportunities. It, it is in practice, but sometimes you have to level the playing field. Sometimes you have to give additional support to certain individuals who may not have the same support historically. So that inclusion piece is really, really important. But equally, if people have equal um, access to opportunities, um, but they don't feel part of an organisation, they don't feel that when you say we're one or this is where we work, that doesn't really apply to them, then they'll also leave. So that belonging piece is central to making sure you not only have recruited the best talent but that that talent stays within your organization so that's for me a, a key reason why in ashes we have this real defined job title the defined area of inclusion diversity and belonging it's critical that we have all three of those aspects my role is to help the firm navigate what is not an easy course i think the majority of people out there, whether it's in the legal industry, whether it's in ASHES, whether it's in the wider community, believe in all of these principles. But getting there is a journey. And so my role is to really help people navigate that journey. And I do that from a DNI expertise perspective, but also as a lawyer, I know the challenges that I face. As I said, I'm black, I'm female, I'm working class. I have seen the various obstacles that you can have in your career. And so it's just about finding ways to make the legal profession more accessible. But when I say accessible, I mean long-term as well. So people stay within the legal profession, particularly in private practice. Yeah, and that's something I'm passionate about as a lot of my community, legal community work and sort of recruitment work is making sure that people want to stay in this profession because they train exceptionally hard. They invest a lot of money, time, energy and effort. And it, and at present, I'm not happy with the number of people that generally are perhaps thinking of alternative careers or ways out of, of, of the law. And I think it's great people like yourself, Nicole, that are really focusing on this important, not nice to have, put it on a website discussion important frankly the the real nucleus and core of how the firm can be successful and keep their people because it's a people-based business so the more you look after people make them feel like they're included you have a diverse employment workforce that belong I think it's just fundamentally important so thank you for the great work that you're doing and one thing I'm very um, I guess keen on and always talk about on these topics is collaboration is domination so I'd love to know from your side how do you collaborate with various teams departments to ensure inclusion diversity and belonging is really integrated into the decision making processes and policies that ultimately run the firm I think you make a great a great point there Rob I, I don't think it's just a one-stop shop you can't have a DNI team and just say oh we've got a DNI team that's it it's that integrating piece because fundamentally what I always say to people is I can create the best initiatives and the best policies and they can be really thought-provoking and outlier policies but if your day-to-day lived experience is not great then you're going to leave an institution so you have to have that integration. You have to look at all types of areas that impact people's lives and impact their development. A big part 
of this job will be the team that you work with. A big part of this job is knowing the steps to progress. And so for me, it's working really, really closely with other stakeholders within the business. Leadership is key. And at Ashurst, we have a fantastic leadership team that I can call upon, who I know will support me if I say I want to do this or I want to do that. They're, they're great in providing their support. But they aren't the people that will be seen on the day-to-day experience. It's your line managers. And so it's working with HR, working with our resource team to make sure we're pulling diverse candidates in front of our line managers so they make the hiring decisions, the correct hiring decisions across the board and informed hiring decisions. It's working with our HR teams around navigating the performance review process and the promotions process. And it's also looking at our LNOD team, um, looking at how we train lawyers, train managers. It's, it's a team effort and it's an integrated process. It's close that I, you know, very important that I talk to them, that I galvanise their support. But it's also really important that I communicate to our people and the management communicate to our people what we're trying to achieve. And I think that message is fundamental in affecting change. I think when you look at what you want to do, you can't do it without bringing everybody along with you because it's about creating that inclusive environment for everyone to be able to thrive. And that really is down to your team, down to your manager, down to your office, as well as down to the law firm that you work in. So it's a a real team effort, but being clear on what you're wanting to achieve, being clear about what the obstacles and the challenges are, are very important and bringing in all that expertise across the board. Yeah, what a what a great answer. And what I'm picking out there that's um, important is, is, is clarity. Um, absolute clear clarity in terms of what you're looking to achieve, but also this, um, what I always talk about again, we is greater than me team, you know, bringing people along um, together, regardless of the size of the firm, you could be a large international global law firm, or you could be maybe a small firm, a boutique firm, mid-sized firm, or whatever it may be. Um, I think there's some really important lessons there. So, so thank you for sharing that. I would love just to get your opinion on what you think the current state of diversity and inclusion within the legal profession is. The current state of, of diversity inclusion in the legal profession, it's hard to sum up. I think when you look at the legal profession in itself and where we were, you know, 20 years ago when I entered the profession, when I entered the profession, the talk was very much around gender equality um, and having initiatives that really helped women get to senior ranks now we're at a point where we have 52 percent of women according to the previous SRA data that came out in 2021 um, but we still need to see greater representation from women at the senior levels particularly in private practice we are more ethnically diverse than when I first entered the profession but are we as reflective of the society that we serve no We definitely need to do more there. And it's not just about getting people through the door at the junior ranks. It is about, as I said before, retaining that talent and seeing it progress through all the ranks. And I think 
one thing we've probably for the last few years looked at is focusing on getting people through the door. Let's make ourselves more diverse as a profession. But then we haven't fully been tracking and really focusing on what happens to those individuals. And it goes back to the point I said about belonging. You can come in to an institution, but if you don't feel you fit, if you don't see yourself at the top, you don't see your career journey, then you'll leave. And so it's been a real journey of moving not just from that recruitment piece, but really focusing on that retention piece. We are more diverse, but there's still a lot that we need to do in terms of LGBTI representation, social mobility, which is a huge passion of mine. Um, you still look at, I know the Bridge Group did a, a study recently that showed that the partnership of, of most, well, the bigger private practice law firms was 50, 53% independent school educated. We have to do more to change that. And so I think we're on this journey, but there's lots of work that law firms are doing, but also working together, which I think is really key. And also some collaborations with the Law Society and the SRA to try to make people work together to change the diversity of the profession. Yeah, and absolutely. Because um, you, I was at a recent event with uh, Dana Denise uh, Smith, who's also a former um, guest on the League Speaking podcast. And we were at the, the House of Commons and we had... Um, Baroness Chakrabarti and a couple of other speakers, and they were talking about how, like, the SRA are actually pushing for, you know, the GC for DNI initiative, and you know, they they are trying to do a lot more. And we've come a long way since 1992. Um, it's on was it 1922 when there was only three female solicitors to today. But like you say, the representation piece, I think, of fame solicitors and partners remains very low. I think it's only three percent black, ten percent Asian. 10% BAME partners. So there is still quite a long way to, to go. But I think it's great that people like yourself doing this tremendous work um, are really making a big positive impact and change on the profession. So let's talk a little bit about some of your, um, your wider exposure, because in an article by the New Law Journal titled Black Equity Organization Launched, you explain the BEO as is the first and only organization operating at scale to dismantle systemic racism affecting black communities in the UK. So would you mind telling us more about the organization? Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all. Something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com 
forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. The Black Equity Organization is a fantastic organization, which is, as you said, really focused on reflecting on the experiences of Black people. Um, And I think that's quite a unique experience in terms of the history of the Black population in the UK, the links to to slavery in the UK, and I think where we are now. And what the BEO does is focus on providing a holistic approach to dealing with institutional racism and systematic racism within the UK. It doesn't just focus on health, it doesn't just focus on education, it looks at all of these issues, health, education, economic opportunities, access to justice and to work opportunities, and recognising that within the ethnically diverse community, the Black experience is a unique experience. And I think it came about at the time, obviously, with the murder of George Floyd, but really a reflection or an inward reflection of the UK population and some really fantastic leading black individuals saying, what do we need to do to understand more about the black experience and to change that experience to improve it for the better? And Ashurst is very much a part of working with the BEO and the initiatives that it drives to, to help and support through our pro bono team and activities that we can do to to support that work because it's a fantastic organization yeah it sounds tremendous and and again thank you for um for sharing that and and, and giving us more of a an oversight you've also nicole been very open in sharing your journey into the legal profession you know if i was to quote being in lower sets throughout secondary school education my mum had to convince my teachers to allow me to sit higher papers at GCSE and also raise my predicted A-level grades. So you've also stated there are lots of gifted future lawyers out there who are hardworking individuals, but may have other pressures in their lives, such as being primary caregivers. These future lawyers may never make it to an interview process because whilst looking after siblings or parents, they've let one or two grades slip. Does this make them any less capable or deserving? So, you know, we've talked about this, you've touched on this, but what should law firms be doing to take these circumstances into account when candidates apply for vacation schemes, training contracts, whatever it may be? Yeah, I I think going to your first point that you read out that quote from me about secondary school, I had a tough secondary school experience, not because I was bad at secondary school but for whatever reason I felt faced challenges and I was incredibly lucky to have a mother who was very invested in my education I don't take that for granted I'm a big believer in the power of one having one person who believes in you and being able to ride that and I think from from my experience there I could have dropped out I would have dropped out if I hadn't had my mum. I would have not completed my A-levels. I felt incredibly um, disillusioned with the process. 
And I think that was um, important to me to have that person who believed and advocated on my behalf. But I understand that not everybody has that. And when it comes to what makes a good lawyer, I think it's more than just your grades. And I'm a firm believer of the school of life. And I think sometimes you have individuals who may not get the grades they they want. And in my case, I did get the grades that I wanted. It was more the system that was against me. But I think there are sometimes individuals who don't get the grades they would like to get but because they have to deal with these other pressures. But what I often find with those individuals is they're more than equipped to do this job. In fact, they're better equipped to do this job. If you have a young person who has that level of responsibility, who therefore is normally very good at thinking on their feet, very good at critical thinking, good at finding solutions, will see things where there may be a lot of complexity in a very simple, how can I get this job done quickly? They are exactly the type of people we want in the legal profession. It's not about your academic grades and Don't get me wrong, academic intelligence plays a part, but it shouldn't necessarily be that you're judged on how you performed on one job or one one day in an exam. At Ashurst, we have removed the requirements for A-level grades. We have gamified testing that looks at, do you have the skills to do this job? And it's not an easy test, but it's a test of, whether you will be able to provide something very valuable to this firm. And that is the ability to be a great lawyer, not the ability to pass exam tests, but it's the ability to do the actual job. And that is what is really, really important. And we're continually evolving our application process. We're always listening and we're trying to make sure there are barriers removed from that process. But I think when it comes to the legal profession, we we have historically lost out on some fantastic talent because we've confined them to these narrow criteria of what makes a good lawyer. I think there are lots of people out there who have so much to offer, who we need to find ways of making sure they can get through the door. Yeah, and we we need to talk about that because um, it's very important. You know, you can be textbook good, but I'm pretty sure most people would take real life good or should consider real life good because, like you say, there's so many skills that are transferable or would make them potentially a really great future future lawyer. So, what is, I guess, your opinion generally on the way law firms onboard trainees? And and on that topic, um, I think you you've been noted or, or quoted. We need to continue to find ways to attract and hire the most capable and talented lawyers. And make sure we are being innovative and progressive in the ways we do this. So, you know, what solutions can you offer to ensure that law firms really are retaining and attracting best talent? Yeah, I think for us, having we in, we're in a, a fortunate position to be able to develop this gamified testing that looks at different things. It looks at emotional intelligence. It looks at your skill set to be able to do the job. It also aligns ours with your values to see if they match. And that removes those questions where people say, oh, this person may not be the right fit. We don't have that question anymore. We don't have that statement anymore because we have evidence to say, well, actually, our values and their values align. And so they are the right fit, no matter what their background may be. I think other things like unconscious bias and making sure that 
you don't you do everything you can to stop that playing into the selection process I know from myself I speak with the exercise I you know talk with now but I have a very broad Yorkshire accent so when I'm at home I talk like this (laughs) But (laughs) but things like that can stop people progressing in the legal profession historically across the board people make certain assumptions about your intelligence your ability your client connectivity based on how you speak and I think we need to be very open and aware of that to be able to tackle it head on um when you say onboarding I go back to that piece I meant about belonging when you come in as a trainee it's important that you feel part of the community it's important that you feel yourself We have generations of trainees coming now who are from Gen Z. They look at things differently and we have to be open to that. They need different ways of supporting them from the historic ways. And we've got to move with the times. They equally have different views. Hybrid working to them is a is a you know an expectation it's not a luxury it's not some novel thing the legal profession we were historically behind in that and covid was a great facilitator in accelerating our process to to really embrace hybrid working but it's about looking at what supports the next generation what do we need to do to better bring them into the profession and to support them particularly this post-COVID generation who are coming into the workplace having spent two years of their life listen, living sorry, in isolation, not having interaction. That's a huge thing to get over. So we have to challenge ourselves. We can't stick to the status quo. And probably for too many years, the legal profession did stick to a well-trodden path. But now we need to be more innovative. We want to, we're competing with tech startups, with the banking industry, the finance industry, lots of other innovative industries. We've got to be as attractive to them. And that's not only bringing them through the door, but that onward support through the process, mentoring, sponsorship, bringing them into networks, feedback, great learning opportunities and challenging ourselves to make sure this works for the new generation of lawyers coming in. Yeah, I don't think you could have said it any better. I think that was a really, really good wrap up of, you know, focusing on the next generation to ensure that, you know, they're in environments that are going to be fit for purpose in today's world and the future world and not looking backwards and trying to bring the profession up to date. So uh, I really loved that. And before we we look to come to a close, I, I want to ask you because it's a, it's a, our family matters to me tremendously, but you also credit your mum for being super supportive and encouraging you to work hard. Um, in addition to your mum, who else have been your role models and what advice have they given you throughout your career and life today? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been um, really blessed by role models. Um, obviously, you've spoken about my mum. I had wonderful grandparents, both sets of grandparents, a Windrush generation, so have instilled in me great work ethic and the ability to really seek and grasp opportunities when they're given to you. You know, fight for those opportunities, but when you get them, 
don't waste them. Don't squander the opportunities to, to better yourself. I've had fantastic role models such as in my career, such as Helen Burton, who is one of the is our current office managing partner in London, but I reverse mentored her and she was one of the first people who really admitted to me about her working class background and that was a huge relief to me it was for the first time I met somebody who was working class and had navigated those challenges I would also say Denise Wong I hope she listens to this podcast Um, (laughs) that she probably has no idea of the impact she was my second seat trainer my first seat was incredibly difficult. Um, I had lots of financial obligations. Um, I was supporting my mum while she was in the Caribbean looking after my grandparents. And my grandma had dementia at the time. And I was really challenged as to whether I wanted to continue in a career in law. She was someone who was a great role model to me in terms of how to manage and get the best out of people and how to create safety in the workplace. Um, and that was, was, was fantastic. I've had so many other role models from a technical legal perspective, from a management perspective. There's too many to, to name, really. I, I do feel myself quite blessed in that respect. I've had a fantastic mentor, which is a, a guy called John Gale, who is completely the opposite to who I am but has been fantastic in really promoting my career and giving me that person who you know you can rely on to give you true advice and help you um but I've had other role models as well so I think even outside of the legal profession I'd I'd say sounds cringy but Michelle Obama and the Williams sisters seeing black women who really take ownership of who they are pride in their heritage pride in being different and own that I couldn't say that they you know they are the role models that everybody should have and they are the first black women other than Oprah Oprah Winfrey that I I really found in my 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 life and so I'm grateful for them being the great people that they they are in their their chosen professions and i'm glad you mentioned wider role models as well because we're more we're, we're humans we're not just you know you're not just a lawyer so obviously you have your legal role models your mentors and we talk a lot about the importance of mentoring but you know you have you know wider you know interests or people you seek inspiration from or teachings or learnings and and lessons and so many amazing people you just referenced there so finally before we we, we wrap up um what would be your one piece of advice you would give to aspiring solicitors who may be struggling to to get a training contract or to get a get a foot into uh, the law firm that they're they're looking to try and get into what would be that one piece of advice I think my one piece of advice there would be don't give up it goes back to what I said right at the beginning of this my career has been some snaking journey of of learning and I think that Sometimes the route isn't straightforward, but if you have a goal in mind and you stay very committed to that goal, you will get there. But often you need people to help you on the way and do not fear reaching out and asking for support, particularly in this day and age where you can reach people on LinkedIn, on on Instagram. 
you can get access to the most influential people, but just by putting yourself out there. And I would do that. Seek those opportunities to get guidance and support where you can. You might start off in a law firm that is not your the end place you want to be, but it will be the stepping stone to get you to that place if you stay committed to the journey. And as I say, take that support where it's given, but seek it. Put yourself out there. Don't be afraid for asking. Yeah, you know, the comfort zone is great, but nothing grows there, right? So break out of that, reach out to people, um, meet people. And, you know, I talk about this a lot on my show. You don't get what you deserve in this life, you get what you negotiate. And I think if you can actually get out there and really meet people, expand your horizons and, and build up that support network or knock on those doors, and you never do fail if you don't give up. It's as simple as that. It's just the journey. So I love that. Love that, love that, love that. Nicole, it's been an absolute blast going through this podcast recording with you. If our listeners, which I'm sure they will, want to know more about your sort of non-linear journey or indeed Ashurst, where can they find out more? What's the best way for them to, to get in touch? Yeah, well, with me, I am on LinkedIn so much. So do feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, equally with Ashurst, you can reach us on our website. Um, so do just Google and find the Ashurst website and you can find out more about the firm. There's lots that we have, particularly if you're new to the legal profession. We have virtual internships. We have lots of work experience programs, lots of insights. So do take advantage of the that information that we have on there we want to we want to hire the best talent and we know it's out there we know it's diverse so any support we can give we we have that already on our website so do reach out to us Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Nicole. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Wishing you lots of continued success with your career. But from now, from all of us on the League of Speak podcast, for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.